Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome everybody to episode 100, Andrew. (laughs) Episode 100. (laughs) I'm amazed we made it to episode 10. I know, um, and here we are. At 100. Episode 100. Feels like, I don't know if you've got a trumpet down there somewhere. There should be a fanfare or something, shouldn't there? There really ought or to. Or we should be wearing party hats or, I don't know, we could have... I've put a shirt on. If anybody's watching this on YouTube, <laughs> I've actually got dressed up. <laughs> yeah, I've got a shirt on. We could just about see the collar of it underneath yes. it. I'm wearing my grey jumper that I wear every other week. Um, I sh- yeah, I should have thought about this. So here we are, episode 100. I mean, it, it, so what does that mean? It's. I think we've had... Christmas weeks off, haven't we? So it probably is just about exactly a year since, sorry, two years since we started the podcast. Yeah. Um, and 100 episodes later, here we are. So should we, let's just think about the sort of origins of the podcast for a little bit before we get stuck into the topic this week. Um, yes. It was, we recorded the first one in person at your house around and it was actually because it ago. was it was just basically it was we had to sit at opposite ends of my sitting room. Yeah. It was, COVID was just, you know, well, where are we now? We're at the 7th of March. So this was pre-total first lockdown, um, but when it was very much a thing and um, we were having to be very careful. Um, God, was that two years ago? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, before that, I think I should say that um, the podcast was entirely your idea. And I went to reasonable lengths to convince you that it was a bad one. Um <laughs> because I just couldn't, and I said this before, but I, I couldn't, and to, and to an extent, I still can't understand why people would choose to, you know, give up a precious, you know, forty-five minutes hour of their of their week listening to you and I bollock on about motorcars. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that they, that they do, or that you do, um, and I'm amazed by the numbers and how well it's done. Um, and yeah, it's 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 been fantastic, and I'm, I'm so glad you. Um, you persuaded me to stay with it because if it had been my way, we'd never have done it. Well, there we go. I mean, I had no idea what we were embarking upon, to be honest, but it, to one degree or another, does seem to have worked out, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, we recorded that first one in your living room and then the guidance changed immediately, didn't it? 
Yeah. Um, and so we had to start doing them remotely. And with a few exceptions, this is how we've done it ever since. Yeah. Via Zoom, you at home, me at home. Um, and it's, it's worked out well. I mean, the podcast, it, it does seem to be going well. And I think probably consistency is the key thing every week. Um, people know what they're going to get. They know it's going to be there. Um, and as a result of all of that, it's now being listened to a million times a year. Um, which is, I don't know, to me, that just, that seems like an enormous number. I know it's not in, in that, in the grand scheme of things, but for two blokes chatting via Zoom, it's not bad, is it? I think it's okay. I think it's okay. And, um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's always up there in the charts, isn't it? Um, I'm afraid I am, I am vain enough to look. Um, (laughs) and we're usually, we're almost always in the, I mean, it's, it, it, it changes through the week because the further away you get from the release of each broad broadcast, I mean, we're usually at our highest rate on about a Thursday, aren't we? Um, Mm. and then we'll, you know, I think almost without exception, we'll certainly be within the top three automotive podcasts in the UK and the top 10 of all leisure podcasts. We, We have been number one in both charts. Um, and in the all time automotive were, you know, top three or four or whatever so yeah just thank you to everybody for listening to it um it means a huge amount to us um i've really enjoyed doing it um we're going to continue doing it um yeah and uh we're actually going to be using other podcast related thing in the not too distant future but we can't really talk about that yet uh mm. but this um as you know it um will continue until you're thoroughly sick of us all of us <laughs> probably yeah beyond that point actually and yeah, I mean, and we now have our podcast sponsor on board, JBR Capital. Very pleased to have them with us. And yeah. it does mean that we can actually start doing more with the podcast. Um, I mean, you and I have a lot on our plates at the moment with the sort of next big step for TI, don't we? So yeah. we're, we're fairly flat out at the moment. But later on this year, I would love to start doing more with this podcast. Um, and because it seems to have an audience, it's that's feasible now. We can start putting more time into it. So... Stay tuned. Um, but as Andrew's already mentioned, we're, we're just very grateful to all of you who listen to the podcast, all of you who have subscribed or followed on the likes of Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, without you lot tuning in, there is no podcast. And so we wanted no. this special episode, episode 100, to be all about you lot, which is why for the next 50, 55 minutes or so, we're just taking your questions um, and lots and lots and lots of you did send us your questions uh, through social media, hundreds. by Instagram particularly, hundreds. So we've yeah. got plenty to rattle through. Can I also say it makes it incredibly easy for us because we don't have to think of anything. We basically yeah, got you to do all the work for our podcast for us this week. So we thought we'd kind of give ourselves a week off and just get you to think of all the questions which otherwise we'd have to think of. So um, so thank you for that. And the other thing I just want to say is when Dan says, you know, thanks to everybody, um, I know that's the sort of slightly trite obvious thing that everybody says when they've got a significant other, but we, actually we genuinely mean it. Um, it it's it, it's extraordinary and, and, and it, it does make a huge difference to us. It makes us happy. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for for tuning in and staying with us. And um, I think the phrase is the best is yet to come, hopefully, anyway. I hope so. So this one's all about your questions. Let's get yep. stuck straight in. Indeed. Um, I've got them on my phone, and I'm just going to rattle through them. Um, and the first one is from Talk Speak. Hello, Ed. You've both been lucky enough to meet many famous drivers, execs, designers, engineers, and more. So which automotive, per- which automotive personality have you never met but would most like to. And I'm going to open this one out a little bit. They can be living or dead. Oh, good. And, um, I'm glad. Because actually, yeah. I thought about just, that, and then I wrote a list, and there are four names on it, and three of them are dead. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you mine first. Go on. Um, and this is purely because of the romance of it all, and people talk about this individual, um, people who have met him in... Um, these amazing terms and they, they talk about his aura, his presence and his, his character. Um, I just, I can't imagine there's anyone quite like Enzo Ferrari. To okay, that's one on my list. Time with. Yeah. yeah, I suspected so. Um, and we know a few, well, we know certainly one person who spent time in his company and Mel Nichols has written about meeting Enzo Ferrari for us on the TI app. Um, the story's on there if you want to find it, but why is he on your list? Because I think he's the most interesting person who's um, you know who, who, who's who's ever been. If you think about the brand that he built, 
um, the character that he was, uh, his absolute raging passion for racing, uh, which underpinned everything, his history, his very, you know, sort of controversial um, approach to things, you know, everything from his private life to the way that he treated his his drivers. Um, I'm not sure he was a particularly nice bloke. Um, there'll be plenty who tell you that he wasn't. Um, but, I mean, that, to me, that doesn't actually matter. Um, he's just fascinating. He's, I mean, if I'd met him, uh, I guess you, you'd have sat there and you'd, you'd, you'd think of some fairly, you know, obvious vanilla questions to ask him because you'd be frightened of asking him the questions you really hmm. wanted, wanted to ask him. Um, but if you could have sat down and interviewed him and just asked him the really tough questions, like, did you really actively seek to pit driver against driver um and would it be fair to say that some drivers lost their lives as a result of that pressure at least in part oh it'd be, it'd be amazing um so yeah absolutely he's right up there mm. um who else have you got uh chapman another bloke i'll never <laughs> meet just yep. the brain <laughs> the mind the way he thought and when he was thinking it you know he was thinking things in the 50s and 60s which you know just Blow my mind today. I mean, extraordinary. Um, uh, another one is uh, another, but I actually I had I had a request in to interview this bloke um, when he sadly died. Piek. Mm. Now we know that Peter Robinson has written a wonderful piece on the app about Ferdinand Piek, but you know, I mean, the greatest automotive industrialist, certainly since Henry Ford, possibly of all time, and also the bloke who designed the Porsche 917. I mean. Pfft. Go figure. <laughs> uh, and the other bloke uh, who is still with us, but sadly I, I'm, I'm sure I will never meet now, is Michael Schumacher. I'm just, I would love, love, love to have met Schumacher because there is this conundrum about him. He is, he is this, this figure who had this reputation as a driver uh, of being merciless, um, of being Machiavellian, of frankly thinking one set of rules applied to him and another set of rules applied to him, and yet. I've met loads of people who actually knew him, not as a teammate or as a rival, but knew him. And I haven't met one who didn't like him. And I just find that, I, just, oh, I would just <laughs> love to have sat down with him and just found out a bit about Michael the man, because I think I know all I want to know or need to know about Michael the driver. So there you go. That's my list. Brilliant. Um, okay, we've got another question. Mikey, M-G-G-E-E. Uh, a journey you'd like to take, but have not yet had the chance many 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 answers to that okay well, you never... think i'll 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 give you mine Go um on. actually i've got a couple one i would <clears throat> and i don't know how this is ever possible because life gets in the way but i would love to spend a summer knocking around the south of france and italy perhaps into spain just the mediterranean europe with my other half old 911 dog in the back seat <laughs> and just <laughs> not bad i think he'd get sick of it wouldn't he but I would, love to, I would love to just spend a summer doing that, lazy, not travelling huge distances, just going to all the places we wanted to go. Um, and the other one, oh, I should have thought about this a bit more because this one also includes an R911, but in terms of driving experiences that I want to have that I haven't yet had is I'm desperate to do the Tuthill um, Ice Drive Sweden thing where yeah. you go up to the frozen lake and perhaps the snowy rally stage and just spend a couple of days skidding around in 911 rally cars. I think that would be pretty special. The journey I want to do, um, and it, this doesn't actually involve driving fast at all. Um, I want to do a big American road trip because I never have. I've done, mm. I've driven thousands and thousands of miles in America, um, but I've never done sort of 10 days on the road in the US. And I'd love to. And actually, I wouldn't do, I mean, the temptation is just to do coast to coast. And I could, would quite like to do that. But speaking to people who've done it, they say, either end's quite interesting and the bit in the middle <laughs> yeah. is really boring <laughs> uh, although i actually find even the really boring bits because i mean i just quite like the idea of going to these sort of one horse towns and staying at roadside motels and just having a beer with with, with the locals and just because I, I just love doing all that stuff um you know i know you're the same when we go on launches and there's the option of some dinner in the massive marriott or whatever you're staying in or just going to a local restaurant or a local but we all everybody we all just want to go to the local and it's and it's the same. And I think the journey I would like to do because you can just string together so many interesting places along the way. I think I start in New Orleans and end up in San Francisco. 
Um, and then you can get, and there's just so much in the middle. There's, you know, the Vegas, if you want to go there and the Death Valley and there's the Canyon and, um, you know, all sorts. Um, you can go up through Lake Tahoe and Yosemite and Yosemite, so on. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, w- one day when I get some time, um, <laughs> probably isn't going to be anytime soon. Um, I would just like me and the missus and what would I do it in? That's the other thing. Well, I'd, li- I'd, ju- I'd like to just get in something with a big lazy V8 in it. Um, maybe something old, um, which would ju- which you could. Ju- I, mean, I wouldn't want to go fast. I just want to bimble about um, and just have a good time. So, I mean, what would it be? Oldsmobile Cutlass convertible, 1971 Oldsmobile That's Cutlass convertible, on. which is <laughs> a terrible car, but would just be perfect for doing that sort of thing. Yeah, you realise, don't you, when you do long distances across America, why their cars are the way they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you know what? I'd, I actually, I, I wouldn't mind the boring bit in the middle because I think a good road trip, you just settle into the pace of it. Yeah. And you just relax. And it doesn't matter that it's boring. No. That, you know, that whatever that word actually means for a road trip. Because particularly in America, I just enjoy observing the iconography of an American road. You know, the big trucks with the engines out front, the... Even the school buses and the yes, the the service With their ridiculous rear stuff. overhangs. And I'm, I'm yeah. exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. And uh, you know all the strange place names that you get, and um, and these towns that you go through, which literally they they are these towns you go through, which are one street thick. You literally just drive through, and <laughs> you know there'll be a fast food joint, and there'll be a gas station, and there'll be a motel, and there'll be some houses, and then you're at the other end, and you'll just get endless number i find the whole thing fascinating i just love it mm. Mm. completely agree um a young man calling himself m frankiti says what are your weird <laughs> car crushes <laughs> and then marino as in ones that are truly flawed or have questionable styling etc weird car crushes oh go on you, you go for I, I i didn't know this one <clears> i come in i'm gonna have to have a think about yeah. this so um, you go okay and I'll, I'll think i inexplicably have a, a thing for the skoda yeti um, it, looks, it looks odd. It's not. It's not an exciting car to be in, um, but I love its utility. Um, I love that it's quirky, that it has character. What I really like about it is that it's built from the same stock of components as any other VW Group car of that era um, and that sort of size. But unlike all the rest, it's unusual and it's a bit different. Um, Good car, I love really, it. as well. Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd really like a four-wheel drive one. Um, perhaps with that punchy TDI engine, yeah. I'd, I'd be very happy with that as a, a sort of family knockabout. Okay, I'm gonna if, if I think of one during the rest of this course of this podcast, I'm gonna leap back in with it. Okay, I'm sure you will. I'm sure um, I will too. Sam Cooper ninety three. I'm about to buy a 2003 MX five one point eight. You haven't talked about the MX five much on the TI podcast, so I'd love to hear your best experiences involving one. I can give him my worst. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's asking, but we'll take both. <laughs> okay, so my worst experience involving an MX-5 um, was the launch of the Series 3, the Mark III, whenever that was. Don't know. Anyway, they decided to launch it. This is going to be a quick story. They, they decided to launch it. Get this, okay? They decided to launch it in Hawaii because <laughs> it was exactly halfway between their two largest markets. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, we went to Hawaii, to the I think we we're on the Big Island. Anyway, it should have been called the, the Traffic Island because it was so busy, and there was one road uh, which we could use for any kind of driving impressions, and we had an hour and a half on it. But I had to share the car with somebody else, so I had forty-five minutes driving this car on this road, which was really busy, and the police were everywhere, and then went home. And so, at the end of it, I totted it up and I spent. 44 hours traveling to drive a car for 45 minutes so basically <laughs> it was a minute behind the wheel per hour of traveling um so that was my worst mx5 experience uh best mx5 was like, oh, i've had so many i've had so many i think probably the but the best was i did a 24 hour race in one years and years and years ago with um with matt Pryor and jethro uh bovington and ben anderson from autosport um and we had Jota running the car, Jota who now go and, you know, win their class at Lamore and that sort of thing. 
Um, and we just because we, we just plodded around and I can't remember what we did. I think we won our class. We did really well. And it was just a, because I was with my mates, because we were with a really, really good team. Uh, and because, you know, little MX5, they handle so well. Um, you could just kind of, you know, the 911s have gone flying past down the straight, but you could outbreak them and then, you know, or, or follow them through corners. And it was just, it was just a really, really happy weekend. So there you go. That's my best MX5 story. Well, do you know what? I, you've just reminded me of this because the first race I ever did was in an MX-5, again, a Jota one. Um, a fairly sort of back-to-basics kind of racing car. I suspect it wasn't the sort that you were in. But it was, yeah, my first race, which is a very special occasion anyway, isn't it? And Absolutely, also whatever you're in. Yeah. The most fraught weekend of your life until the flag actually drops and you, you get going. Um, but, yeah, and I, I remember this was at Anglesey, the first ever... Uh, Mission Motorsport Race of Remembrance. Um, and I, I just remember qualifying at Anglesey in the howling wind and pouring rain. Um, to the, You know when you're behind another car on track, you're tucked up right behind or, or a couple of cars, and the spray is so thick and heavy, with mm. your wipers going back and forth, yeah. you can't see a thing. No. You can see their lights. Yeah. Um, and ordinarily, that would scare the life out of me. And I'd just back straight out of it and try and find some clear track. But somehow, because it was visor down and because you're in that qualifying mode, just got on with it. And eventually found my way past these cars. Um, and I, in a grid that was 80%, 70-80% Mazdas, I was a second faster than any other Mazda. Wow. Um, and wow. I was, I think we, I th- you know, we probably had an advantage with tyres or whatever. But for a first qualifying, that was very special. And yeah. That, that will stay with me forever. The other one is, again, it's motorsport, but the most accessible form of motorsport there is, auto solo. And I've spoken about it on this podcast before. I did a, an auto solo day with the Bristol Motor Club down at Weston's Island near Bridgewater. Um, and it's first and second gear stuff, skidding around cones. But, and it was a, a very tatty, but mechanically sound original MX-5 that the chap bought for 800 quid or something. Um, and for, for that sort of thing, the car was absolutely perfect. Light, nimble, rear drive, so you could do big slides around all the cones. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. I've never enjoyed an MX-5 more than that. So if you're buying an MX-5, honestly, just ch- check out auto solo events and get stuck in. You will love it. Um, okay, let's move on to... Hang on, I've got a weird crush. <laughs> car crush? Yeah, you know, okay. my answer to your Skoda Yeti. <laughs> okay. Fiat Panda 4x4. Oh, good one. What, uh, one, one generation? Uh, oh, early as possible. So, yeah. original. So, I mean, so I just, because I have a theory that the greatest off-roader in the world is a Panda 4x4 on winter tyres. Because it will be the lightest four-wheel drive car you can get and the most compact. Um, and every year around here, well, not every year because I don't have this year, but most years around here, um, we do we do get cut off. We would be cut off if I didn't have my old Series 3 Landy. And the only reason I don't have a Panda 4x4 is because I got that Land Rover and because I passed my test and I can't sell it, so I can't justify having a Panda 4x4. But I just love the ultimate utility of it. I've, as I said before on this podcast, I love more than anything else. I don't care whether it's a an old Fiat 500 or a Ferrari F40. I, know, I love cars that know what they're for. Cars that just, you know, and don't try to do everything. Just try to do one job really, really well. Um, and I can't think of a better example of that than a Panda 4x4. So there you go. I'd like a really good condition, but not so good I'd be scared about using it original 4x4 Panda. Sorry. Right. Next question. Well, there is no cooler car at a ski resort than a Panda 4x4. You just you know go. that they'll keep going where all the modern SUVs get stuck. Um, <clears throat> Silver Fox 14. If you could be the boss of any car company, which would it be? Why? And what would you do? My answer is whichever the most profitable car company is. And I would keep doing exactly what they're doing because... That'll be Porsche then. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just keep doing that because honestly, in this day and age, the thought of being in charge of a car company scares the life out of me. And it seems almost thankless. You think about the very, very bright hard-working, experienced people who have had such difficulty at the helm of Aston Martin or Jaguar, you know? It just seems like it's such 
a profoundly difficult thing to yeah. do. And frankly, yeah. I'd rather not try it. I would go for a car company that exists at one or other pole of the automotive industry. So I'm talking Caterham or Rolls-Royce. Because, you know, we have to accept that the world is changing. And we have an all-electric future, whether that's the right thing to do, whether we like the idea or not, really neither here nor there. That is what is happening. And when I think of the cars which are best suited to that, I think of either enormous limousines where silence and talk are what matters. There's no better source of power for a Rolls-Royce Phantom than a battery. It's the ultimate in refined progress. Uh, And at the other end of it, I think, well, what is going to be least uh, affected by the limitations of range and recharging? Well, it'll be a car you don't drive very far. Um, And how do you keep cars light well again by not having very big batteries which means cars you don't drive very far so something like an aerial or something like a caterham uh, and also because of the way that you can control um the way power is delivered in an ev i think although obviously we're going to miss changing gear we're going to miss the noise and everything else i think that there will be great opportunities for being an idiot in those cars um just because they can be so I and mean, porsche will tell you that the taycan on the limit is the most controllable car they have ever made for exactly this reason so i think that there will be ways of having fun uh in cars and as long as they are pure recreations so you don't have to go very far in them and they don't take very long to charge because they don't have very big batteries and i think there's a huge opportunity there so i would like to be in charge probably one of those actually rather than rolls royce i think rolls royce would scare me um but yeah something like Ktro, I th- it would be really really interesting to see what the future holds for those sorts of things and i think that there is a future um in a way that for cars that you know have to be all-purpose general use cars that you know for enthusiasts i think that's more difficult well good luck in your new role you Thank are going to have to relocate from uh the Forest of Dean to somewhere near Gatwick or at least get a, a small apartment there. Yeah. yeah. It's a long commute, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's certainly in a caterham, it would be. Yes. <laughs> okay. Spencer B.B. Clark, for non-car journalists and those who aren't in the position to be buying, tips on how to drive sports and performance cars. Are red letter days or a friend who owns a collection the only option? How do I scratch the itch that gets worse the more I listen to T.I.? Difficult, isn't it? Mm. It's really difficult. I mean, when I was a youngster, um, I used to, because uh, for, for reasons actually, funny enough, I'll be explaining on the TI app uh, over the next couple of days or so, I think, um, I had an MG Metro. Um, and that was just enough for people to take you seriously if you turned up at your Peugeot garage and said, I'd like to test drive a 205 GTI. Mm. So that's what I do. I just go to the Metro and I go and I drove an Astra GTE and a Golf GTI and a 205 GTI and all of them literally by turning up in a Metro. Um, I don't know whether they take you seriously these days. I'm not sure whether, you know, if you bowled up in, I don't know, a, you probably would, you know, an old Civic Type R to a Porsche dealer and said, I'd like, a, I'd, I'd like to drive a Cayman. I don't know. I don't know. But it's not, it's not, any, it's not, it's not a question which to me presents a, 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 an immediately easy answer. We say, oh, he's just going to do this. Um, you know, obviously there are any sorts of ways you can go and do it by spending lots of money on it. Um, you know, as, as the um, bloke answered the question, also it says, you know, you go and do red letter days, track days, whatever. But no, it's not easy. It's not straightforward at all. And um, I, I suppose one of the key points is that you don't have to spend an awful lot of money to get a car on your driveway that's worth having, you know, setting the alarm at, 4am on a Sunday morning you, you know we've mentioned cheap MX-5s already yeah. um, <clears throat> there are other cars like it MR2s and so on yeah. um, so you know if you've got a couple of grand to spend on a car there will be stuff that's worthwhile out you there you can probably buy a, a, an oldish 350Z Nissan yeah that'd be brilliant um, yeah brilliant fun great fun great fun you know V6 engine manual rear drive two seats great noise great performance you know go enjoy there you go And in terms of red letter days, I think, you know, if you want to experience what a Ferrari 360 or a a Tati V12 Murcielago is like to drive, great. But you will be limited in what you're able to do. 
Um, you're not going to be howling around on the red line, tires squealing all over the place because that's that's not how those companies really make their money. But there are some that are really worthwhile. And the one that always sticks out for me is the Caterham Drift Experience. And I think it's a couple of hundred quid. You'll be in a big car park or the paddock at a racetrack somewhere. Might not get out of first gear, but you will drive the wheels off the thing. You will power slide it. You'll do donuts. You will, I promise you, you will have the time of your life. So if you have a few quid to spend on an, on an, an experience of some sort, I would recommend the Caterham Drift Experience. Yeah, and that's a very good point you make because these, you know, I know someone who's doing a company that let people drive very special cars. Um, and obviously, you, they have to do it in a very prescriptive way. And so, you know, those days are fine if you want to say, oh, I've driven an Aston Martin DB5 or, you know, a Ferrari F355 or, or you know, or whatever. Um, that's fine. You can go to those days and you can come away saying, and, and honestly, look anyone in the eye and say, yes, I've driven one of those. But have you really driven it? Have you really got a feel for what it can do? The answer is almost certainly not. Because those cars, they're too old, they're too fragile, and they're, and they're too valuable. And, you know, I wouldn't let anyone, you know, rag them. So, no, yeah. No, no. Um, jury on the road. Journalists versus PR representatives. For example, <laughs> when, the car gets, when the car gets a bad review and they're not happy with it. Um, any experiences that you can divulge? Yeah. Um, most of the time, you know, most of the time you hear nothing. Um, there was one time, okay, he wasn't a PR person. Uh, he was actually the head of the company. So I once did a, a group test between, oh, what was there? I think we had, a, we had an M3 convertible. I think we had a 911 convertible. We had something else. I forget the bat. But the, so the key card was there was a Maserati bi-turbo spider in there, which was, I mean, just <laughs> shockingly <laughs> awful. Um, and I did this for Autocar and I wrote the group test and it came fourth out of four by a mile um, and the telephone rang in the autocar office uh, someone picked it up and they said it's Richard Mackay for you and Richard Mackay was the head of Maserati in the UK at the time and I thought oh well, I'm for it now um, and I went uh, hi Richard uh, this will be about the story won't you and he, asked, and he said yes thank you so much for writing it and I couldn't believe it he said no thank you he said they don't listen to me maybe they'll listen to you um so um so that um so but yeah so i mean that's a bit of a sort of um sideshow so um most of the time they say nothing sometimes they get i mean what you mustn't be if you're going to give something a kicking what you mustn't be is factually inaccurate you really have to be as diligent as you possibly can um because you know a that gives them the ammo and b it's just professional if you're going to give something a kicking well that's fine but you've got to you know you can't just get stuck in and then, you know, discover you've been wrong about something. Um, the only time I found it really objectionable um, was there was one PR person, and I'm not going to say who they were, I'm not even sure if they're in the business anymore, or which company they work for, but I wrote something which was, you know, not convenient for them, and they rang me up and said, Andrew, I thought we were friends. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> So I had to disabuse them of that notion there and then. Um, and I just thought that was absolutely appalling. Um, but the other thing that I think is, I, I really don't appreciate is, uh, you, you, and you will have this, and every motoring journalist who's ever gone on a car launch uh, has this, is, and sometimes it's well-intended and sometimes it absolutely isn't. You get out the car. So you're flown somewhere by a car manufacturer. You get put up, you get put up at a posh hotel. Uh, you get to eat all their nice food. You do all this, and that's all on them. So you're kind of there on their ticket. And so that is, you know, we do it because we couldn't get to drive the cars any other way. Um, because there's no way any of us could afford to pay for these things ourselves. And so you, 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 you have all that experience, and then you go and drive the car, and you get back at the end of it, and the PR standing there and go, well, Dan, what did you think of the car? What are you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah because if you... You're right, because if you have reservations and you don't voice them there and then, but you write, the, write about them, you may well be called up on that later on. Yeah. You see, you're, see, see, you're either, your choice is to be either be rude, frankly, mm. and just say, yeah, thanks for you know, flying me out here and putting me up there and giving me all that lovely food, but your car's still crap, which is infinitely the preferable route to take. Or you go, um, 
oh, no, I thought it was great. And then you're put in a position where you either have to write something you don't believe or appear to be lying. Um, what I tend to do is think of something which is incontrovertible, um, which doesn't actually provide an opinion. So what do you think of the car? It's really fast. <laughs> yeah, and then walk away. And then walk away. Because that's, mm. the, that's the only way I can fudge it. Because, you know, I mean, I should just say, I'm really sorry, but I'm, I, I don't like it. But the problem is, if you do that, then you provide the PR person with a crisis they feel the need to manage. Because they'll think, oh, blimey. So, and then what happens is you then get buried in, and then they spend the rest of the launch trying to persuade you that you're wrong. Uh, and I don't like that either. So I usually, and the other thing I often say is, uh, because we always have to share these cars, and there'll be some poor sap sat next to me. And I go, that's a really interesting question. I think I'll let John answer that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I run a mile. Uh, and right, sometimes noted. I have said, look, I'm really sorry. Um, I'll, you know, you can read everything I think about this car. Um, when I write about it but for now I've literally just got out of it I haven't marshaled my thoughts um there's a lot to think about and if you don't mind I'll you know I'll reserve judgment until I've actually sat down and thought about it and that's fine but yeah mm. okay. it's not much fun when that happens go on no, one, no one's asked this question but I suspect lots of people will be interested in the answer and I've got another one after that as well um has a PR person ever by one way or another exerted an influence on your verdict or your opinion of a car Oh, I hope not. Or how you've represented it? No, no. I mean, I wouldn't be. You know, that, you know, the, I've had an editor do it, and that ended my relationship with that client because the verdict that I wrote about a particular car wasn't convenient to their particular agenda, whether that was based on editorial or advertising. Um, and I was put in a position where I had to change a negative verdict to a positive verdict or not work for them again. Well, that was easy. So that was the end of that client. Um, no, absolutely. Because you couldn't, could you? I mean, you know, who knows what effect, if any, you know, the posh hotel and the posh meal and everybody being nice to you has. I mean, you know, they, they do it for a reason. Yeah, you know? that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Does, does all of that have... I mean, they, uh, they must think it works. Yeah. Um, I... I have sufficient belief in my own faculties and my own abilities to reach a judgment to think um, that it's, that it doesn't. And, and I take heart from the fact that I, I, I hope it's true that over the 30 odd years I've been doing this, I have tended to be um, harder on cars than the average motoring journalist. At least I hope so. Uh, because I think that if you're not like that then when you do say something out of a car then it doesn't really mean anything because you know if you're nice about everything then your verdicts become meaningless um but no sorry i i i don't imagine so i really really but also no one's ever tried no one's ever come up to me okay this would be a really stupid thing to say go look it'd be really helpful if you said something nice about this car um but, you know, they know not to do it that way. So I, I can't say whether, as I said, all the hospitality has ever had an influence on me. Um, or, I mean, usually the fear, certainly among freelance journalists, is that if you say something unpleasant about a car, then you're not going to get invited on the next trip. That's definitely happened. That's definitely happened. Interesting. Um, people have gone, you know, entire companies have gone quiet for years because you said something which was inconvenient. But, you know... Still but you still it. said it, and you'll you always say to. it. Yeah. Um, okay, an, an emphatic response there. What about this one? Do car manufacturers advertising in magazines ever have an influence on the outcome of a road test or a twin test? Or has a car manufacturer, in your experience, ever bought, um, for instance, a car of the year victory? This is stuff, by the way, that we're accused of all the time in the car media, being in the pocket of car manufacturers. So it's just interesting to ask the okay. question and get your answer. Um, I, can, I can only talk about magazines that I've worked for. Um, and also I can only talk about the departments of magazines that I've worked for. Um, because I don't know what goes on, you know, in smoke-filled offices on the fifth floor where men wear <laughs> suits and talk to. Um, but it has never, ever, ever happened to me. And, you know, and, and the only magazine that I'm really close to um, which does this sort of stuff all the time as Autocar. Now, I haven't actually been employed on Autocar for, when did I leave? 96, so whatever that is, um, 26 years. Um, but I know all the guys who work there. Um, and no one is ever going to say to any of them, oh, look, um, 
there's X amount of advertising budget on the back of this verdict, if you could say something. You know, they, they just laugh. Um, and so I can't speak for other magazines. You hear all sorts of stories about um, car manufacturers going to magazines uh, or magazines going to car manufacturers and go, if you give us X amount of quid, we'll stick this car on the cover and I think you're going to be assured we'll give you an easy ride. You hear all this stuff all the time, but it is conjecture and it is rumour. And I have never in all the years I've been doing this, come across a case where, I mean, there's advertorial, you know, and, and, and that happens all the time. Car manufacturers pay for supplements um, where p- people go and do stuff, and, you know, some new car comes out um, and that needs to be flagged up as such. And I'm not very comfortable with, um, with doing it, but as long as it is flagged as such, then, you know, at least no one is being deceived. Um, but no, I've never witnessed it, seen it, um happening a with any publication that i've ever worked for i can't say anything else than that because i can't speak for publications i haven't worked for indeed well those last two questions were from dan pross 86 so we'll move on to actual listeners and this one is from (laughs) hairy barnyard um what's the one thing punters can do that doesn't cost anything other than some fuel to safely and legally improve your driving uh well um okay Two things. I can think of two things which are safe, legal, and genuinely improve your driving. Um, first is an environmental one. Go somewhere you can drive. You know, don't, you know, so, and, and both these things are a time investment. So that I, I guess there is a cost there. Um, but you need to go to somewhere where you can focus on your driving. I mean, you're not being distracted by other things. Um you know, I don't know, traffic lights, other road users, whatever. The second thing is, and I think this is probably the most important thing, and it's actually something that I do, and I've always done, is the problem with, with, with driving is you're always doing something else because you're always driving to a destination where you're going to go and, you know, meet friends or have a meeting or take your kids to school or go to the supermarket or whatever. And so driving is this kind of thing that you do because you've got to do something else. It's always secondary. So just drive, get in your car for no purpose other than to drive it. And so it isn't, you know, the sort of the sideshow. It isn't something which you kind of think about in the, you know, in, 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 in between everything else. It is all you're thinking about. Um, clear your mind and just think about the way your car is addressing the road. Think about your gear changes. Think about how you're steering. Just think about the whole process of driving. Talk to other people who drive lots as well. But basically, yeah, drive, you know, you wouldn't, I just want to think of an analogy. Um, You know, if you're, I don't know, revising for a maths exam, all you do is think about maths. So if you want to get better at driving, just think about driving. Don't think about anything else. You wouldn't start thinking about geography halfway through your math revision. So don't, don't be distracted by anything else. Um, And then, yeah, and then you'll get better. And just concentrate more. Jim Clark always used to say if i want to go faster i concentrate harder and then the speed just comes he doesn't think oh i'm gonna drive faster now so he doesn't you know he didn't sort of grip the steering wheel more or you know go, put his foot down yeah, let's go fast let's yeah. go faster you, know, you just concentrate more and it's you know there are no shortcuts that's what it's about and uh and you'll only be able to concentrate more in an effective productive way if you're in an environment which allows it and if you're not being distracted by having something else to do so go somewhere you can drive and drive for the sake of it. it's also wonderful fun because if you do get held up, which is unlikely, just turn off the road. Find a turn or turn around. Go the other way. It doesn't matter because you're not going anywhere. You're just driving. Or pull over at the side of the road. Wait five minutes, and then the road will be clear again, and you'll never catch up whatever was holding. You. And so you know, it is. It is an incredibly liberating experience, um, and I commend it to anybody. Sorry, I'm banging on a bit there. Right, next question. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, take pride in your driving because that will put you you know, well ahead of 90% of drivers on the road. So take pride, want to be a good driver. That's the first step. And also don't worry about being fast. Just be smooth. Make that the first thing. Smooth and safe and anticipate. Um, if you, if when you change gear or brake or accelerate, the car's sort of jerking and jolting over the place, just get to a point where that's not happening, where you're just operating the car very smoothly. And then with anticipation, with observation, the speed will come if that's what matters to you. Can I, can um, I mention one more thing, which is um, if you're driving on a track, and this was something which another great motoring journalist and racing driver, uh, Mark Hales, taught me 
I mean, years and years ago. And I kind of knew it, but I never even really sort of thought about it. I think he calls it the circle of adhesion. Um, and if, you th- if you're on a track, and this only really applies to on the limit, um, and if you think of grip as being a circle, um, where acceleration and braking um, is, you know, takes you to the edge of the circle, um, and, you know, sort of north and south, and cornering um, takes you to the, to the edge of it, east or west. Wherever, whatever you're doing with the car, you have to be on the edge of the circle of adhesion because your tyres can't go beyond the edge of the circle. So you can't be braking as hard as you like, as you possibly can, and cornering as hard as you can because that takes you outside. You can't do both. And so everything is about balancing the car at some point on the circle. So, you know, if you're in the middle of, if, you know, if you're accelerating out of a corner, you can only accelerate sufficiently um, that your tyres will allow and your tyres won't have as much grip um, as they did if you were just in, you know, sort of constant state cornering because you're asking them to work beyond the limit of what they can do. Yeah, um, and the, and so two just, axis. Exactly. So just think of the circle of adhesion um, and balance, acceleration or braking. So balance, I guess, the sort of the longitudinal and attitudinal, if that's even a word. And um, yeah, that really help me understand particularly approach to and departure from a corner um and the point being if you leave the traction circle the, the tire slides the car slides so you, exactly. you're losing a load of time um mark donahue writes about it in his book the unfair advantage in at real length so if you want to know more about the traction circle read mark donahue's book um robert rothwell 82 what are the best non-performance and sports cars you've driven i.e standard hatchback that has surprised you with how rewarding it is to drive? Good question. Ford Fiesta. Ford Fiesta, isn't it? Ford Fiesta. Perfect example. Yeah, I can't remember whether I talked about this. Um, my daughter came home for a weekend um, a few weeks ago and turned up in a 99 PS 1 litre Fiesta that her work had hired for her. And this thing had done, you know, it'd been bounced off every curb, um, it'd done a load of miles. Um, not one my daughter I hasten to add. What a fantastic little thing. What an absolutely fantastic little thing. It just... And it wasn't just that it was fun to drive, which it was. A peppy little engine, lovely balance to its chassis. Uh, it was also... It was completely usable. It was quiet and it was comfortable and, you know, it was functional and it was just fantastic. Fiesta. Uh, or either Mark Six or Mark Seven Golf. As long as it's got the multi-link rear suspension because the cheap ones don't. Um, you know, when, when we had to decide what family hack to get, um, we got the cheapest Mark 7 Golf that had a multi-link rear end because it's just... And every time... Even, you know, we've had it for three or four years now and every time I get in it, I just think to myself, this is such a good car. It's such a great car. Original Focus as well. That was... Oh, yeah, yeah, I, ne- yeah, yeah, I never yeah. owned it. It was my mum's car, but it, that was the car I drove most when I was 17, 18, 19. Yeah. And I learned so much from that car about what good steering is, what good balance is, um, even adjustability, yeah. uh, body control. Wonderful so car. much of it comes down to rear suspension, doesn't it? Yeah, surprising actually. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't even. And, it's not, and not the even Focus had that, had that, um, that revolutionary com- control blade rear suspension, which everybody still uses today, uh, and with good reason, um, because it provides that precision, doesn't it? Um, while maintaining really good ride quality. It's, 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 it's a work of genius, and um, yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay, a slightly different question. Sam Cran, I hope I'm pronouncing your surname right there, Sam. I'm very conflicted as a car enthusiast and environmentalist. Mm. I love manual transmissions and fabulous internal combustion engines, but I also have a love for nature, and the thought of destroying our planet because of my rather insignificant interest terrifies me do you both feel this conflict and how can nature and car lover balance these passions? I do feel it. And increasingly, I think as you become more aware, um, you feel it more and more. Um, I do have an answer for this, um, which is go and drive an old car. Go and have a classic. I mean, I think one, one point is it, it basically it's, it's almost impossible to do anything without damaging the environment. You know, if you have your... You know, you you, you, you have your Weetabix in the morning. Um, You know, that's come from somewhere um, and there have been emissions associated with it. So I don't think that, obviously what you can do 
um, is estimate what your, your CO2 emissions are, whatever, and there are any number of CO2 offset projects you can get involved with, with planting trees and that sort of thing, and that's all very worthwhile doing. But if you own a classic car and you go and enjoy it, um, you know, you are owning something which has already been built. So you're not taking any, you know, any of the raw materials that are required or any of the emissions that are required to make a modern car. The second thing is, is that if, let us say, you choose to enjoy owning a classic car and, and, and that you set aside a budget for that, and that budget might otherwise have been spent on, I don't know, going on a budget airline on a cheap holiday somewhere, think of all the emissions um, that you don't incur because you have changed your use from something which is not which is environmentally particularly unfriendly to something which is you know not ideal but an awful lot better and if you accept that nothing is ideal i there was the center for economics and business something <laughs> i wrote it down but i can't read my own writing sorry about that um but they wrote and i've actually i've done some research for this Huh. If classic vehicles did not exist and their otherwise owners spent their money uh, in a normal way, it would lead to emissions in these key sectors more than double those spent on classic and historic cars. There you go. So there you go. Um, yeah, and, and also, if you, so if you spent, instead of going on one holiday, you have a classic car instead and spend that money on a classic car, your emissions, according to the same report, are 90% lower than they mm. would be if you'd gone on that holiday. So buy an old shed is my answer. Yeah, it's so easy as a, a car enthusiast to feel under siege, to feel like an easy target. Um, but actually, when you start interrogating the science, it doesn't stack up at all. And um, what's more sustainable than keeping a car that was built 30, 40, 50 years ago running? Yeah. Um, or, you know, it... it, it emitted most of its missions in manufacture um, and that's long in the past so keep that thing going rather than buying a new car that has to be built from scratch um, also if you know if you're being made to feel guilty about getting some pleasure out of driving a petrol car what are we talking for, for pure pleasure I mean a hundred couple hundred miles a month probably um, you really have to start interrogating every other life choice that you make yeah. Are you travelling unnecessarily to football matches? Are you eating avocados? Yes. Um, what do you do with plastic bags? You know, there's, there are so many areas in your life, in your everyday life, where you can be more ecological, greener. Um, and just getting or not driving your car for fun anymore, it's actually not going to make any difference. There are so many more things you can do. Yeah. Um, also, you know, we, we don't do big miles in our cars um, purely for fun. So the emissions, it, it, it follows. The, the emissions are tiny. Most of us, our driving on the road is to do with commuting, isn't it? Um, and no one makes you feel guilty about that, perhaps because there's a sense that you have to do it to work. But for me, you know, pure pleasure driving probably represents 4 or 5% of my total mileage. Yeah, most. So, so, I'm, so I'm, not, I'm not about to be made to feel guilty about it. Um, I think it's just worth having a, a sort of 360 degree assessment of this sort of thing and understanding that it's actually a tiny, tiny part of your carbon footprint. Um, it's an interesting question, though. And there's another one here on a sort of similar vein. Paul CCSS. I love cars, but getting more and more uncomfortable with the material, the materialistic aspect of cars these days. Is that a thing? And actually, I think that it is a thing. And for me, cars, particularly exotic cars, have been appropriated by a crowd who actually has no interest in cars themselves or driving or engineering or design, but they're into the image, they're into attention, they're into making noise, being seen, telling the world that they have money. So cars have, certain cars have been appropriated and they are used in a way that makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Um, and so when I find on those few occasions that I find myself driving through town in a Lamborghini or something, I know how it must look. And that, that sits uneasily with me. But I know that I'm into cars for more meaningful reasons. Um, and so I understand that point of view, but I, I also don't particularly wrestle with it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think it's. I, I mean, I, I I share your point of view entirely. I you know, I'm, because it's just because it's just not me. I've never really understood why people buy cars not for what the cars can do but for how they think they make those those cars make them look uh it's just not something that i've understood but just because i don't understand it i wouldn't say therefore it is invalid it's not relevant to me um but yeah i mean all i would say is that if you are buying something which is hugely environmentally unfriendly just so you can make some kind of statement to your to your neighbours or to your friends or to people you know, on the pavement who you'll never see again. Um, I, I do think that maybe that should perhaps be be looked at. But we all know the vast majority of cars, and I'm not just talking about, you know, Lamborghinis and supercars, but we know that, you know, the, the, the SUV, the rise of the SUVs, um, and even, you know, the crossovers when they first turned up, you know, people didn't buy these cars because they were the absolute best at the job that they required them to do. Almost all, all the time, they weren't. People were actually compromising having cars that were less good at what they needed those cars to do because they thought it that car made them look good in whatever environment they found themselves in. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a luxury that perhaps increasingly we as a, as a world can't afford. But then again, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be, well, I am being judgmental, but, you know, it is just my point of view. And, you know, there will be others who come on and, and, and might say, actually, you know, I love my car. I love my car because I feel good about it. Uh, and that really helps me um, because, you know, it helps me present the image to the world that I want. And is that wrong? It's not something that, that resonates with me at all, but I'm, I, I wouldn't say actually, well, you're wrong to feel that way about it because I'm not, not even I'm quite that judgmental, but yeah, it's a real issue. Mm. Um, okay, let's get back to some core TI territory. Yeah, James yeah. Bald, a thousand miles to do. You have either a Ferrari Daytona or a Lamborghini Miura to do it in. Which one and why? It's easy for me. It's easy for me. Daytona. Daytona. <laughs> yeah because it's that's more of a long distance car yeah I'm more likely to get you there as well <laughs> <laughs> there is that um so slightly unfair well probably i don't know whether it is or it isn't um yeah i mean a, a, a mirror to me is probably the most beautiful road car there has ever been i love the innovation that's in it i love the reason for its creation which was basically a two-fingered salute to end there's so much about the mirror that i absolutely love but as a driving machine, um, you know, to be fair, I've only driven one Miura once and I've had much greater exposure to Daytonas and much more recent exposure to, I say Daytonas, oh, uh, I, but I have driven a couple, but I, I did have, you know, I've driven around Snowdonia as fast as I can make a Daytona go. So I have some understanding of what that's like. Um, and yeah, and, and also, you know, I, I, <laughs> There is some iconography there, isn't there? You know, the sort of the ultimate front-engine Ferrari V12 two-seat sports car. I mean, pff, it's just it for me. And also as a kid, and in fact, you know, all through my, my upbringing, I was just a Ferrari guy. Uh, I was always disappointed when a Countach beat a boxer in a group test. So, um, And there's a bit of me left over, of that left over in me from that era. So, I mean, today, I you know, modern Ferrari, modern Lamborghini, I would just, you know, assess them on their merits. But... Yeah, back then I was a Daytona man, and uh, and I still am. Um, this is a this is right up your street. This one, Johnny Kentfield. I'm taking my first trip to Le Mans this year. Yeah. What are your personal do's and don'ts for the four days in France? I was about to say, don't go this year, go next year, because next year is <laughs> next year is going to be the year. But um, actually, well, maybe this year will be a good year because maybe it won't be quite so busy because everybody will be waiting for next year. So, personal do's and don'ts. Um, do watch the bloody racing so many people go there and you know and they get carried away with drinking beer and getting drunk and everything else <laughs> um, don't get so utterly plastered on Saturday night um, that Sunday is effectively ruined for you it's a very very long race um, yeah um, do 
get out to other parts of the circuit. Don't just stay in the village. You know, there are shuttle buses which run around the circuit all the time. Um, so get out to Mulsanne, get out to... Um, you know, I always tend to be at... My little ritual is I tend to be at Tete Rouge as the sun goes down, and I'm always at the Porsche Curse when the sun comes up. That's, that's quite full on because uh, the sun comes up at about half past four in the morning. Um, but to be there, and these cars are already battle-scarred, um, and to, at, at such quick corners, uh, it is absolutely epic. Um, sort out your accommodation. Um, if there's anything you can do to get access to private, how can I put this, lavatorial facilities, do it. Um, I'm not quite sure how you do that. Uh, we're very lucky; we have press we have, we have press passes, so we can just go and um, use the facilities in the in the press room. But um, you know, before I was a motoring journalist, I used to go to Le Mans. That was the thing that I dreaded most. You know, queuing up. I mean, and 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 then the sort of the vision of hell, everything oh. overflowing. Um, I remember an old lady sitting there who would sell you loo roll by the sheet. So, if at the very least, take your own bog roll. Um, <laughs> get a good place in the campsite. Um, and pace yourself also if you can be there for more than just the race get there for more than just the race so good i mean you know le mans people forget le mans is a sort of week long you know particularly with qualifying um event and if you can be there for a few days um then that's fantastic go with mates if you can go down as something fun and interesting do that um don't take the obvious route down to le mans because there are police all over it so the dual carriageway from calais to um to le mans um at actually sometimes if you go at strange times of day or you know not when everybody else is traveling you can go down there quite quickly but you won't have a great time because you'll be too scared to go fast um because the police know all about Le Mans on they know that the Brits come over and that you're just a sitting duck so take your time cruise down maybe stay somewhere on route use the the little end roads don't just sit on the dual carriageway um and and you'll have a really really good time yeah enjoy it it's fantastic right we've Oh, we've done an hour already, so oh, one last thing: time. So Radio Le Mans, Radio Le Mans, Radio Le Mans. Yeah. Okay, yeah. get yeah. Radio. You, you, just you know, they'll sell you little radios. The problem with a twenty-four hour race is you so, you so quickly lose track of what's going on. Um, and there is this British radio station, uh, John Hindhoff and his mates, um, which is at, it's, it's it's probably the thing apart from the Grand Monnier pancakes. It's probably the best thing about Le Mans. Um, and you know, I, I literally, I wander around and I have it in my ear for 24 hours. Um, well, apart from, oh, yes, so get some sleep. That's another thing you should do. Don't be one of these guys. Oh, you're all night. Don't do that. Okay. Because it'll just ruin Sunday for you. Um, I hope that's enough do's and don'ts. Brilliant. That's yeah, all in there. So we can do one more. Um, this is from Hunter Sands 25. Henry mentioned Lego Technic sets in his escort article on the TI app. That is. I was wondering what you guys think of the role that model cars, be that Lego, true scale models, Hot Wheels, RC cars, etc., have in the automotive world. Are they a good a good way to experience some of our favourite cars we otherwise couldn't afford, or are they or are they too far from the real thing to play that kind of role? It's completely different, but no worse. I mean, I'm rubbish at building those things. I really am. I'm just hopeless. Um, but as a sort of weekend project, if you particularly got a mate, I mean, I've got a brother who is really good at that sort of thing. Um, and I can remember not that long ago, we built um, a Tamiya radio-controlled uh, 911 RSR kit. And it was just, it was such a fun thing to do. And also, you know, the way, just, you know, it helps your understanding of cars. It helps you, you know, you understand the way that suspension works. It helps you understand the way that differentials work. Um, and if you take your time over it and don't get completely which is what happens to me i just look at the kit and they're sort of you know two thousand parts fall out the bag and you think well i'm never going to turn this into a car um but then you think well there's no time pressure um it's just really good fun it's got nothing to do with the cars themselves it's got you know it, it, it doesn't in any way replace the experience of driving them or having them or seeing them or or, or whatever it's but they're no worse for that it's just a completely different thing um i'm, I'm not very good at it I don't do it very often, but when I do, I always enjoy it. There's a lot to be learned. Um, our mate Chris Harris has spoken recently about learning about suspension layouts from Tamiya yeah. RC kits. Yeah. Um, we know Lewis Hamilton raced RC cars before he was old enough to go karting. Um, and I looked into the world of 
sort of elite level radio control, radio control car racing a few years ago. And actually, the level of detail that they're getting into is extraordinary. They really yeah. are thinking about differential settings and yes. dampers and how they prepare their tyres. Um, so, you know, if, if you want an insight into it, yeah, RC cars are a brilliant way to do that. Um, well, we should end it there. Otherwise, we'll just keep on going for hours and hours. Um, but that was episode 100 of the Inscooler podcast. Um, we're taking your questions. So thank you, everybody who sent them in. That was a bit different, that one. Hopefully it was enjoyable to listen to. But as we said at the top, a huge thank you to everyone who's taken the time yeah. to listen to the podcast, particularly those who have subscribed or followed. Please do that and please leave a rating, a five-star rating. Thank you very much because that really helps us grow. And the more it grows, the more we can do with this podcast. Um, and we'll carry on. There's plenty more that we can talk about. Um, we're not about to stop anytime soon, are we? So please do subscribe, do follow rate and review um any final words andrew yeah look forward to the next 100 oh crikey (laughs) there's a prospect next 100 okay let's crack on let's get to it then all right and thank you so much everybody thank you to jbr capital for um for making it all possible to all of you for listening to it and um we'll see you for podcast 101